Good morning. Very nice to be here. Not that it's not nice to be out there, but it's very nice to be here. Um, as you know, we're in the series called The Burden is Light, and we're looking um, at John Tyson's book, which I would highly recommend you read. Um, his book's called The Burden is Light, Liberating Your Life from a Tyranny of Performance and Success. So we're doing that, um, and that's been going well so far. We're learning, uh, we've talked about uh, the cycle of comparing ourselves to others. We've looked at living a life of grace and freedom in terms of what you put into your life. We've looked at mercy triumphing over judgment. And then Jen shared with us last week about being passionate in an age and a time of complacency. So this week, uh, we're looking at living a life of surrender instead of a life of control. No coincidence at all that this is the one I've been asked to do. Um, I will be drawing a lot from the book, but I'll be drawing a lot from myself because this is my struggle and this will be my journey. But first, I want to share with you a charming story. Um, next month is our 17-year wedding anniversary, and thank you, and um, recent, that's for you, Luke, that's in 49 sleeps, actually, um, and we've been talking about our engagement story, and it's quite good with our boys just to share the story off and just build the expectation of what they need to prepare themselves to do, just keep it a long distance uh, expectation for them. Um, so at the time when Luke and I had been boyfriend and girlfriend, which was quite exciting in itself, um, for about six months, and he had planned a wonderfully elaborate day, and I didn't know anything about it. And at one point in the adventure that was the day, I had to choose between control and surrender. Now, it's not the last time I've had to make that choice, but I had to choose between a romantic notion and surprise and joy or completely freaking out because I'm not really whimsical as a person. Um, I don't kind of get swept off anything, really, um, or whisked into anything. And um, Luke had just done a really excellent job of planning, which is truly something that would sweep me. Um, and he had this idea, it's uh, kind of halfway through, one third of the way through uh, the day. It was a full day extravaganza. We can share that story another time. But a third of the way through the day, he had this vision in his head that I would kind of burst into this lovely public toilet in the art centre in Christchurch. More lovely than toilet, so very nice. And that be, I'd be handed a favourite dress, and I'd be given some makeup and my shoes, and my flatmate who'd been hiding there would kind of do a near Cinderella transformation on me, and then I'd be utterly ready to breathlessly embrace the spontaneity of the rest of my life. Um, so aside from the small fact that this is not at all who I am, um, there were just a few practical problems. First of all, I was very weirded out by the fact that Luke wouldn't stop to let me go to the toilet, and this is an ongoing issue. I need a toilet. Pretty much all I need is a toilet. In fact, I just need three walls to give a sense of a toilet, and I'm good to go. I don't need the front... I need the three walls. And I had needed to go to the toilet, and it's a bit awkward when you're just at the boyfriend-girlfriend phase. You don't want to break it down like you can do later where you say, stop, now I need to wee. You talk euphemistically about bathrooms and needing. But at the moment, it was, I need to go to the toilet. So I was already feeling a little odd that he wouldn't stop and was saving it up for this other place. It was also the wrong dress. Um, I had a really favourite dress, and this was not the right dress uh, that he had chosen. I also was wearing the wrong undergarments for the dress and the wrong shoes for the dress because I was going out on a day with Luke, and to go out on a date with Luke, you need to be fortified because at any point you might have to jump or leap or walk 
or be in the outdoors. So I was ready for the outdoors in my day and the dress and the under area of the dress was not matching with what was happening for me. So those things were going wrong and I was also faced with a choice in that moment. My choice was to... um, as I began to slowly realise, I had been quite slow about what was happening that day. I didn't know this was my great proposal story. I had been slow because Luke and I had taken quite a while just to get where we were, and I had known not to dare to kind of think things might go further at this stage. So I kind of hadn't really clicked. And so I was kind of at that stage where I was like, right, do I need to kind of suss out from him what's going on, or do I need to keep this thing going? I was actually in a wee bit of a panic, not because the idea of Luke was anxiety-provoking, but because the whole thing had nothing to do with me, and that was anxiety-provoking. I like to be clear about what's happening in advance. And so this was what we call a surprise, and I don't do surprises, and I don't think we've done them since as uh, part of that. So I had to then decide whether I was going to put all these wrong items on and pull myself together. I had the makeup bag was the makeup that I don't use, and I'd shoved in a bag, and my flatmate had grabbed that, so I had four mascara, all gluggy, to choose from, and nothing that I would have liked to have cinderella myself in. So I had the choice to control or surrender, and Luke very generously and wisely Um, offered to explain the whole thing to me. He said, look, I can tell you everything that's going to happen from this point. I can give you all the details that you will need to feel safe and clear and not as silly and confused as you are now. And I paused because this was a very significant day in my life and it was dawning on me very quickly. And I thought, do I want to ruin this by being Charlotte or do I want to just embrace the fairy tale that looks like it might be coming my way? So I did eventually surrender. I mean, it's the blue eyes, people. They get me every time. (laughs) I was pretty sure that I didn't want this to end up being about me. And I was pretty sure that something pretty cool was going to happen. And deep down, I needed to be swept off my feet. And I took a deep breath and I trusted. And I walked out of the toilet door and it worked out pretty well. Pretty well. So like I said, I feel like I was born to be the poster child for the tension that is control versus surrender. I will probably always embody that tension. My anxieties and my desire to get things right are a killer combination. I don't like looking foolish. I love being in charge. I like to manage things and I need to know strongly in advance what is happening and I need to know it to the tiniest detail. If you have had anything to do with me in church through Bay Kids, you may have noticed that. I write plans that take eight pages with every single thing on them. Not that I intend the person to do everything I say, but my brain needs to know every single thing that's happening. Control will probably always be something that is very hard for me. It will be my life's work. It will be what I wrestle with because it is the solution to anxiety, and that's something that I'm working through. It's also the go-to for managing which is something I'm working through. And it's also part of the stuff that makes me function really well. It's the part of who I am, and most of the time it's okay. So I'm in the process of identifying that and working it out, and I'm comforted by knowing what's happening in advance, and I'm learning that that's okay. I also need to know what's happening in advance from every angle. That might not be as okay. But I need to choose to embrace the lean-in, and I need to choose to embrace that feeling of freedom, and I need to learn to let go every single day. 
And I need to know that because of how I'm wired, I'm actually not excluded from joy. I'm not excluded from lightness. I'm not excluded from ease and from life. And I think that's partly why God sent me Luke. Because Luke likes big ideas and adventures, spontaneity and fun without any warning. So this morning, I want you to start thinking a little bit about control. I want to unmask it a little bit for you. Because when we think of that word control, we often think of being controlling, or we think of being a control freak. And those are things we can put out there. Those are other. Those are people doing things out there. It's someone else's problem. But I have experienced some so-called chilled out, totally chill, relaxed people who have exuded a very strong sense of control. And at the same time, I have met some incredibly generous, warm-hearted people who lead very managed lives. So what I want us to do is take away those kind of veneer of control and instead look at ourselves, look at our ways of functioning, our ways of living and how we do things in terms of how we control from the inside, our perspectives, our burdens and our behaviour. Because the funny thing about control is that there is an actual sense, a false sense though, of calm. When you seek to control a situation or a person or an action and that choice, you actually briefly feel for a minute like you've got it sorted. It's temporary though. And if you stop and let yourself think about it, it's actually frightening because suddenly it's all on you, just you. When we put ourselves in control, we are saying to God that we've got it that life is better, small, limited, and manageable, that we'll get it sorted and we don't actually need him. And often what we're saying underneath that is that we actually don't trust him to have it sorted for us, that we don't see him as being enough, that at some point he's let us down and we can't see him as the creator, as the rescuer, as the most powerful. We instead have made ourselves the biggest force in the universe and secretly we're struggling with feeling unloved and unseen. For me, this looks like total panic. You won't ever see it. I get a a thousand yard stare going sometimes, but you won't actually see it on the outside, but total panic and I know to double down. If I need to deal with something, I go very much inside myself and I manage and I physically feel like I'm push God aside and say, look, I'll get back to you because I've just got to sort this at the moment. And that had been my pattern. So what I'm really saying deep down is I don't think you love me enough to be in this with me. I think this is the part where you stop and I've just got to work it out by myself. And I don't think you care enough really about me or that you see my brokenness. And I question, can I trust you, God? Are you really who you say you are? I'll get back to you. I'll sort it out myself. That might be a familiar pattern for some of you. But before we get a little heavy on ourselves, Uh, Let's give ourselves a wee break. We're going to look at a case study in the Bible of a biblical character who exemplifies the warning signs of control. And that is Saul, Israel's first king. The one they super duper wanted because everyone else had one and they wanted one just like him. And he arrives on the scene and he is the product of everything that they wanted. He is the answer to please can we have what they have externally everything you could want in a king, but internally flawed. And for me, I think the bigger point is worse than that. He's totally unaware of his issues. So this character turns out, despite his access to God and his guidance directly from a prophet, to be absolutely lacking in integrity and honesty and full of pride. And his insecurities, as we know, lead him to live in a constant state of comparison and competition. 
It is said that his desire for control overshadowed his life and drove him to madness. So the warning is crystal clear. He is effectively replaced by a seemingly insignificant humble shepherd boy whose key quality in stark contrast is radical and humble trust in God. God says to Saul, I will look for another, a man after my own heart, every part surrendered. We know from David's story that actually he's not the perfect man either, but we know it's his heart that God looks at. And it's his heart that David himself examines again and again and submits again and again to God. There's evidence really early on in David's battle with Goliath, which is such a great story to share with kids, but it's such a powerful story for us as adults because David is approaching this battle entirely differently than everyone who's gone before him. He's stepping in, doing something completely radical, and the radical thing he does is he doesn't armor up. Talking in terms of psychology, one of the safest things to do to manage yourself is to armor up. Whatever you do to not let people see you, and whatever you do to manage the heck out of yourself so that you can try and function normally, is armoring up. Brene Brown, just dropping that name in, look her up. So he armors up. And he, I mean, Saul is wanting him to armor up and he refuses to armor up. Instead, he embraces trust and he knows who God is. That's his language as he goes out into the battle. He knows who the Lord is and he knows who he is in the Lord. Saul literally tries to turn him into himself and he lays it aside. Control will always armor up. Surrender will always lay it aside. Unfortunately, armor feels one heck of a lot safer and surrender looks a wee bit naked. But that is the point in being vulnerable. So control is ultimately fearful and mistrusting and reactionary. Every one of Saul's decisions spiral into this whole descent of just mistrusting everyone. Surrender, exemplified here by David, is humble and steadfast and trusting and a lot stiller. And it speaks truth. David's accuracy in the moment of battle comes from knowing who he is, knowing who God is. That gave him the clarity. Saul's continued feelings of being threatened, which we might say a little kinder in our language now. We might talk about his anxieties. We might talk about his dysfunctions. We might talk about his unprocessed trauma. Basically, he's threatened, and this causes him to seek control. And we're going to look at three areas. These are John Tyson's points that I'm now stealing. Three areas from his life that result in disaster every time. But I want you to think about them for yourself. It's super lovely to talk about Saul and then keep it out there. But um, some of these things may apply. Saul seeks control in terms of timing. He is ultimately unwilling to trust God's timing. Show of hands for difficulty in trusting God's timing. No one. So that's marvellous. You guys are great. Um, and in this, he doesn't actually get to bother to know God's true nature. He takes things into his own hands, which immediately means he's taken things out of God's hands. This is exemplified in 1 Samuel 13. God tells Saul not to enter battle until Samuel has offered the sacrifice. Right? Super clear instructions. Saul, instead of waiting, takes control and offers the sacrifice himself. He said, well, look, it was taking a bit long, so I think I'll do it. Heard that in yourself? Uh, John Tyson notes that Saul was unable to live in the tension of God's timing. God's timing provides tension. I know you will have many stories where you have lived in the tension of God's timing. And sadly, when we seek to act in our own time, John Tyson says that rather than waiting on God's, this doesn't accelerate the work of God in our own lives. It actually corrupts it. 
Saul, or perhaps ourselves, uh, we're guilty of overstepping due to impatience, or overstepping due to a lack of trust, or a sense of needing to be in control and in charge. And what we miss often in our own lives, but clearly we can see in Saul's, is that grasping, that making do, that pathway of foolishness, where things start to spin further out of control, because it didn't produce the control we thought. Now we've got so many things to juggle, something gets dropped, something gets lost, or in Saul's case, something gets taken away from him. John Tyson says we face the consequences of our fear-driven decisions. The second area that Saul seeks control in is obedience. He has this theory called partial obedience, which I found really interesting. It's a very low-level passive form of rebellion. In 1 Samuel 15, God commands Saul to destroy the Amalekites. In victory, Saul destroys all the weak and useless animals, like he's told, but he decides to keep the best ones alive because he thinks it's a really great idea. He actually even says, I did what I thought was best. Brave man. He has selective hearing. He has partial obedience, effectively not fully doing what he's told, but kind of defending himself that he kind of technically done it. It's a very, um, I don't know what age bracket it falls into. It feels like it could be 2 to 15 years age. And a child's kind of thing, like technically I've tidied my room, but technically what I've done is I've moved all the stuff you can see behind the bed now, so technically it's tidy. So it's not, it's following, you know, just the feeling of the command as opposed to the details of the command. It um, doesn't just appear in children. Uh, so Saul um, has said that he obeyed in the way he thought was best. And Samuel responds by going after his heart, not his actions. Obedience over sacrifice. Following, surrendering fully over doing the so-called right thing. So what's on the inside does matter more than what is seen and what we portray. John Tyson says this, Control manifests itself when we create the terms and conditions in which we will obey God. Obedience is about trust. And when we try to accomplish God's will in our way, we practice a thinly veiled form of rebellion. When we were in the process of deciding to move here, one of the strongest, clearest messages I've actually ever heard um, God say to me in my entire life was a very simple sentence that said, do not drag your feet. And I will quote myself from my phone notes where I wrote down in that particular month of discernment everything I felt God was saying. This is the thing that most clearly stood out to me. April the 9th, 2017, God told me not to drag my feet, to not make this about Luke, and instead own it myself and know that I'm going. And I said that into blank space. Nothing had happened yet. But I felt God so clearly say that to me, and I knew he was saying that to me because that is a skill I strongly have called dragging my feet. It's the, yes, I'll do what you say, but I will just show you in many passively aggressive ways how I'm unimpressed that this is the thing we are doing. It's a little power pack phrase, just straight from God to Charlotte. He said, When I'm kind of questioning him, is this the right decision? Is this what we should be doing? He didn't go after that. He addressed my heart and said, don't drag your feet. Don't make it based on whether Luke says to do this. Lots of our decisions I've left to Luke to decide, Luke to talk to God, and I've joined in with all the partial obedience that you could muster. This time, God said, you need to know you're going. And I didn't know it was coming, but that's what he made really clear to me. I also couldn't make a decision based on Sam and Jen and just say, well, I'm going for them. I really had to know I was actually going for me. It was the best wisdom that God could ever give me to tell me to be obedient. I 
I'm not very good at that part. But he said to be obedient and he said to walk it out. It was very much our decision. We couldn't be too lofty and say the Lord has. It was very much this is what you've decided to do. I'm in this. Don't drag your feet. It felt really abstract at the time, but it has meant that every time I doubt our decision, every time it's hard, every time I'm not sure, I feel this nudge. Don't drag your feet. Don't drag your feet. Surrender. Choose. Let go. And then I am reminded that God's in this all over again. I could have easily dragged my feet. I'm very good at that veneer of obedience. That's something I could do quite half-heartedly. But then I would be seeking to control everything that has happened here. And nothing that has happened here has been in my control. Every aspect, I would have kind of run past that decision again and I wouldn't be able to let go. In my phone, um, July 30th, 2017, I've written this verse, Psalm 33. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait and hope for the Lord. He is our hope and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. And bit by bit, I would try and do what um, was the equivalent of my army or my warrior strength or my horse, things that I tried to control and make happen. But bit by bit, I needed to know that I needed to surrender those things over, even if it was trying to get the job or trying to get the house or working out where the kids go to school and how we're going to make it work by the, uh, being here. Bit by bit, God taught me to surrender. The whole thing about coming to Napier for us has always been out of our control. And that's, to me, the wonder of surrender. Finally, something big enough that I've really had to lean into God and learn these lessons. The third area for Saul is threats. He chooses to control and to eliminate the threats that can happen to him and in his life. This is where control leaps into action for a lot of us to remove a perceived threat. This can be a threat to our circumstance. Um, This can be a threat to a challenging problem. Or sadly, this can be a perceived threat from a person. We see this particular example in how Saul treats David. Saul's insecurity by this stage and fear has got more and more intense as David has surpassed him in military skill, surpassed him in military leadership, and surpassed him in total favor. See, uh, Saul is seeking to control David and everything unravels from this point. And because of his attempt to control him, he loses relationship with his own son. He tries to control David through marriage. He tries to um, control David through just a series of events, like um, slowly trying to kill him and everyone else that comes in between them. His desire for murder has really overpowered him. John Tyson says this, in Saul's attempt to overpower David, we see the destruction and heartache that a spirit of control unleashes in our lives and in our relationships. Seeking to control others inevitably stops us from living in the beauty and freedom of our own call, enslaving us instead to a reactionary existence based on perceived threat to our security posed by others. In summary for Saul, the illusion of control is just that. The more he sought to mitigate risk by seizing power, the more he drove people away and created distance with God. Saul learned the same lesson that we will learn, that if we govern our lives by our own hands, we take ourselves out of God's. 
Now, this is pretty heavy stuff, and I'm wanting to speak really clearly with you, and I'm not trying to speak to you um, saying, here's something you could do that I've totally nailed. As I said to you earlier, this is a, a daily, sometimes hourly issue for me, and I'm pretty sure this will be my thing. But when we can create for, we, when we create for ourselves a heavy burden in whatever way that looks like for you, when we don't choose freedom and we don't choose lightness, we know that's not his way. And surrender is the only antidote to control. And surrender is about the posture of your heart. And that's what I really want you to hear today, that surrender is a posture in your heart. It's not sacrifice, like, look at the things I'll do for you, God. Look at the ways I'll try and be better. It's not obedience more than those things. It's the posture of your heart. It's that you say, I will surrender myself to you. That is how I try and live. I have to make that sentence a lot because it escapes me a lot. I have to constantly say, I will live a surrendered life. I'm never going to be chilled. I'm, and please don't ask me to chill because that makes me very not chill. <laughs> but I won't, be, I won't be chilled. I'm not going to float around. I may not even do spontaneous random things. I think Napier is the highlight of my life and then that may be it. But I will n- probably not change the composition that is Charlotte. And, but I will accept the freedom that comes from surrender. And I will learn to kind of live in that ease despite myself and because of God. So surrender is the antidote to control. It is the posture of your heart. John Tyson says this beautiful sentence. It's the posture of the heart in which we humbly climb off the throne of our own lives and invite the one who rightfully belongs there to take place. Posture even before obedience. Surrender is an open posture of love. It is based not on duty, but on trust. And I think therein lies the rub for a lot of us. It requires us to trust. It is a free response. It's an attitude that's open to all possibilities that the Father brings to us. Of course, trusting in who we know he is. Obedience can happen in a moment, but surrender is the posture of a lifetime. So our challenge with this lens of the burden being light is how do we as followers of Jesus live like that's actually true? How do we find freedom and embrace a surrendered life? And we've been looking every week at Matthew 11, 28 to 30, and it's beautiful in the message. Are you tired? And we all said, yes. Worn out? Yes. Burned out on religion? Yes. Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Jesus is our answer because us trying super hard isn't going to work. We can often fear the surrender, the giving over, because we're, we're really wired not to do that. It's safer and braver just to hold it all together. It's a process, though. Jesus is saying in these words, walk with me. Work with me. Watch what I do. He's not throwing you out into the ether and saying, let's see if you sink or fly. He's saying, I'm with you. He's showing you a particular style, a new way of being, a new way of doing. He's alongside you, and you're not alone. He's leading you into freedom. Most importantly, he's gently prying your hands off the things that you hold dear. He's unwinding you. He's resting you. These are his unforced rhythms. Nothing laid on us. We are free. We are light. He's bringing out you 
And he's showing you how he does these things, taking the burden off your shoulders, supporting you, holding you, loving you, encouraging you to sit with your vulnerability and your fear. For me, it feels like he's putting you into recovery. And yes, we are tired and worn out and burned out. And yes, we know we need to come to him, drink him in and spend time with him and lay it all on him. We are to recover in him at his pace for us and know who we are in him. We are called to rest, to stop comparing, to bravely slow down, to breathe, to notice, to be vulnerable, to sit with and wrestle with our pain, to spell it out and to name it and to feel it and to walk through it, to surrender the fear and to lean into the trust and to let go every day because every day you'll need to. John Tyson finishes with a summary from um, St. Ignatius of Loyola. St. Ignatius, I didn't even need to say that that other part. He says this, that sin is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants is our deepest happiness. Until you are convinced of this, you will seek to control your own life. Knowing God, knowing that God, sorry, sees all the moments and concerns of our lives and is committed to working all things together for our good and cares about us deeply gives us the confidence to let go. This is the confidence we have. When we trust God, we are not surrendering to chaotic forces or to blind chance. We are surrendering to love. And that act of surrender allows us to be caught up in an embrace that will never let us go. The simplest understanding of surrender for me is this from Proverbs 3. Uh, We know it as trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. The message breaks it down as this. Trust God from the bottom of your heart. Don't try to figure out everything on your own. Listen for God's voice in everything you do, everywhere you go. He's the one who will keep you on track. Don't assume that you know it all. For me, that is clearly spelling out the steps to surrender. So this morning, I want to make space for you to surrender. Now, I want to make this a thing that you might do that you might have to do again in an hour. You might have to do tonight. You might have to tomorrow. I'm not building up that this is going to be the pinnacle of the moment in your life where you finally mastered surrendering because that's not the point at all. The point is the posture. Remember David? We know all the things that David did that disqualify him from being a perfect man, but his heart posture was for the Lord. God noticed there was a man after his own heart. I want to make space for you this morning to surrender because I want to encourage you that it's a habit that you will need to spend your life doing. Not because you fail and haven't got it sorted and fully regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, but because it is something that you'll battle with as you learn as a follower of Jesus to lean into his ways and to master his ways. And if you can make it a habit to surrender, if you can make it a habit to let go, you will find yourself melting into him in a much easier way than if you say, I'll get back to you. I'll go and sort it out. Don't sort it out first. Sort it out with him. And I know for a lot of people, the fear of letting go is what if he's not there? What if he's not trustworthy on the other side? What if I let go of everything and he says, thanks, I've got it now? But that's not our God. And that's not his heart. He is for us. And he is in the process of transforming us. He is the author and perfecter of our faith, not us. 
We didn't start it, and we certainly won't get it right. It's his interest. So I want to make space this morning that you can come and experience the freedom of God. You can let go. You can release, even if it's just the tiniest bit of holding on tight, because I want to make us conditioned to the fact that this posture of our heart is the place we need to be. Control will say to you, you are all alone and you must do it all by yourself. And it may have said that to you over your entire life. You are alone and you have to have this by yourself. That is a lie. Surrender acknowledges there is another and he is for you and he loves you and he has made a way for you. We are desperate for someone to lean on and share the load in. We are desperate to not be in charge, but we are so held back by the things we fear, our disappointments, our anxiety, our mistrust, our hurt, our betrayal, our misguided sense of responsibility and our small view of God. But he has enormous, unconditional love for you, regardless of all of that. And his desire is for us to experience freedom and peace and joy in life now. So even if it's hourly, even if it's daily, even if it's every night, you go back and think, oh, didn't surrender that, didn't surrender that, didn't. No, yeah, good. And just have a little chat with him about the things that you will do. It's not the sacrifice. It's not even the obedience. It's the posture of your heart that will lead you into the antidote for control, which is surrender.